Good morning. Is right, Thandi Sony from The Lion King blowing the bloody doors off Studio 6 with Oliver yesterday. Now you are awake. And what an amazing week it has been. It's very warm, very warm. I broke out in a sweat getting the bike out of the shed. That's how warm it is. Yes, we were all sweaty Betty this week, but what an unexpected boost. After the summer, we've had sun splitting the stones, which can only mean school time. A cruel irony and life lesson, kids. And there was a lot on the radio this week about kids and their relationship with smartphones. And while we might suspect it's not necessarily the best thing in the world, research tells us it's actually worse than we might have thought. On Morning Ireland, Samantha Library spoke to Alex Cooney of Cyber Safe Kids about their survey, which found that 93% of 8 to 12 year olds have their own smart device. And when it comes to bullying, well, the figures are quite scary. A quarter of all children at primary school, 40% at secondary school, have experienced cyberbullying. How worried are you about those figures? I mean, these are big figures. I mean, these are based on 5,000 responses from children. Uh, so they are really significant. And, and certainly that figure at secondary school level, which is the, it's the first time we've gathered data from secondary school children. So even for us, that was a surprising number. And then there's the gender breakdown. So, so more girls and boys experiencing this online. And are there particular areas online this is happening? I mean, this is happening uh, on uh, social media, on gaming platforms. Uh, from our data, we know that these are massively popular. 84% of primary school age children, so all in theory under the minimum age requirements, they have social media accounts. Uh, over 90% are gaming online. So this is where it's happening. And it's when we say social media, it's not just, you know, the sites that we think of. It's it's messaging apps as well. They're a big, big, big part of this. WhatsApp would be massively popular. It's one of the most popular, in fact. I think 39 percent of the, ch- the primary school age children had an account and I think it has a minimum age restriction of 16. So. And what's happening in those spaces? So it's group chats, it's it's children coming together uh, and having conversations, sharing material, videos, photographs, comments. Uh, you know, sometimes we've even seen in terms of cyberbullying, we've seen things like groups set up saying, you know, we hate Susie and Susie is not included in that group but is aware that it exists, you know, so these sorts of incidents are being reported to us. So that's the possibility of getting bullied by the phone in your pocket. And not to scare the living daylights out of you entirely, but with Oliver, the possibility of accessing porn, it is all there. He was joined by psychotherapist Richie Sadlier, whose new programme is called Let's Talk About Sex. What age are they when they see when a child sees pornography for the first time? The average was around about 10 years of age, and there was quite a few people who'd seen it at the age of eight. And I think that will horrify a lot of parents watching or a lot of people who are are kind of new to this conversation. But it's if you kind of step back a little bit, like it's appropriate around about the age of kind of fifth and sixth class to start becoming excited or interested or curious about the changes in your body and sexual development. That's what's meant to happen. That's a sign of healthy development. Mm -hmm. 
that's why, you know, in fifth and sixth class, you have to talk and what happens with your body. So you, you combine the curiosity, which is normal and healthy, and their excitement, which is also normal, with the fact that they have a phone in their pocket, which is no filters, and they can access what they like. Mm. So young people now are getting a lot of messaging around what sex and relationships look like from the porn industry, which is an even more kind of, gives even more kind of pressing need to have conversations yeah. about how we could do things better in classrooms. And if you're thinking, oh no, not my child, they're only playing a few games, better TikTok. Mm. People obviously think, well, we've got the firewall on the phone, they're not going to see this and that, but it's the other. They're seeing it from someone else's phone. Yeah, again, again, and, and there's, there's a bit of chat well, about what that. What was interesting the is that what they say, how they felt when they saw porn for the first time. Yeah. Again, I suppose... If you, you're talking about the minds of children here. So if you're eight or nine or ten and you're from a, you grow up in a household where discussions around sex just don't happen for common sense, age appropriate reasons. And then you see footage of, of kind of two naked adults or maybe more than two adults in a scene where they're performing whatever acts on one another and maybe having a great time. But the words they were using, they were kind of disgusted and confused. Um, and kind of weirded out or freaked out or this kind of stuff, which again is understandable. Mm-hmm. Um, but the interesting thing was, like, I then followed up and said, well, how many of you had conversations with adults about what you just saw? And it's back to the thing we said before. It's like this thing that, you know, we're not meant to talk about this. Yeah. So we don't talk about this. So if kids see something that upsets them somewhere in their head, they go, well, mum and dad, are, my, my parents have never mentioned sex before, so I can't bring it up because sex is just something we don't discuss. So just, none of them mentioned it. No. So it just goes on. It just quietly. goes on in their in their like confused, disturbed little heads. They go, okay, right, this is all a bit weird, and this is a bit wrong, and I can't talk about this, so I can't get any input or information or guidance or support from any adult about what I've just seen because again, we don't talk about this stuff. Which is sadlier with Oliver. Of course, there is the option of not giving your child a phone in the first place. That is the initiative of primary schools in Waterford. Their charter is called Gen Free, free from smartphones, free from social media and free to be kids. Dr Brian Barron is the principal of Port Law National School and he joined Ray. But while this may sound great in theory, in this day and age, you're making your kid a little bit odd. Chalk letters on a slate territory destined for the friendless margins. Does it only work if everyone signs up? I don't think so. I think it works if you get some level of critical mass to sign up, you know, because I think as parents, we end up almost being peer pressured ourselves. We feel the pressure that my child actually has been left out because all his friends have the phone or all her friends have the phone or they're all on TikTok. Where if you can say as a parent, I know these three or four children are on TikTok, but I also know that these 20 children aren't. That's a very empowering place for a parent to be. You know, so mm. I don't think you need a 100%. I think you just need a percentage that makes pe- uh, parents feel confident that they know their children is their child isn't being left out. They know that the child isn't some kind of social oddity, if you like, uh, in the modern world, and that other parents are taking the same stand they are. But while laudable, might we all just be a bit late to the party? 93% of 8 to 12 year olds own a personal smart device. So if this is if this initiative, Gen Free Charter, is to be in any way successful, it will mean that some children are going to have to give up what they already have. 
Yeah, or um, alternatively, where you start, you know, you, you would focus on younger children as well. So if you were to focus on, say, junior infants, the second class, which would be five to seven, eight-year-olds, where smartphone ownership is a lot less, then you're saying to parents, you don't have to actually take anything off them. You just don't have to buy them one. And I mean, when you see the report, when you read it, um, and it's not a small group that they've taken no, for the survey, yeah. it's, it's alarming. And the power is within parents to change. This isn't some great unknown that we have no idea. This is equipment we are handing to our children. And we're saying to them, right, off you go into this world that you're just not capable of, of well, dealing with. Oh, our relationship with smartphones, so tricky. Never mind the kiddies. Well, if all of that has left you reeling, fret not. Sure, it was better on Tuesday evening brought us clips from the good old days. Now, it was not always soothing, sepia-tinted nostalgia. But this next bit was. From 1959, the arrival of Gilbert to Dublin Zoo. Gilbert is a hippopotamus. Are hippopotamuses any use? Uh, not from a commercial value, no. They are quite valuable from a zoological point of view. This one is nearly, well, roughly a thousand pounds, but was made possible by the sale of our giraffe, which we made a little on the deal in, actually. Mm-hmm. I think he's a, a monstrously ugly beast myself. Is it normal for them to have those queer pink patches around their ears? Yes, it is. That's quite normal. Well, what do you think of him? Uh, it's it's a queer looking uh, an, uh, thing and it looks like a, it has a pig's head, something, something like a pig's head on it. A uh, pig's head? Yes, ma'am. And you like the look of them? No. Why? What's wrong with them? It looks terrible. Terrible? Yeah. What does he remind you of? An elephant. An elephant? Yeah. And he reminds you of a pig? Pig. And what does he remind you of? Uh, well, as it looks, a hippopotamus. Touché, smart child. Now, what is it with Brendan O'Connor and the freezing water? Not enough to set the shower to cold or hop into the sea in January. Sure, everyone is doing that. Oh no, he had to talk to extreme swimmer Nuala Moore. Kindred spirit. She went to Siberia for a dip in zero degree ice. They're literally cutting with chainsaws, cutting a a swimming lane out of the ice, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Boom! Yeah. And minus 33 degree air. Whoa. I know. So, yeah. yeah. And suddenly you're hit with this thing. If you can't breathe, you can't swim. How, How is that going to work? And what excited me the most is I had so many questions. I'd come from this complacent bunny of like, I can do anything to suddenly it was like, oh, my God, what if, what if? And there's an excitement in that to be challenged and pushed back. But I had just swam Lake Zurich, which was 26 kilometres, a 12 hour swim four months earlier. And like getting into the water at seven o'clock in the morning, getting out at seven o'clock at night. I felt who, who gets out of bed for a 20 minute swim? <laughs> Certainly not me. Oh, you've got to love that chutzpah. But such was her confidence that she had set herself the goal of swimming 1000 metres, which only two other women in the world had achieved. But you know what they say about pride. I always had this belief, you just have to endure. You just have to push and hold on. And when I got into the ice, I got in at zero degrees and I put my feet in and the pain. I had. I knew exactly what everything felt like. And as I immersed myself in, I think you've done some very cold water swims too, Brendan. Mm. So you'll know when it comes up to your chest, that breathing happens. And most people will have experienced that cold shock. But we didn't understand it at that time. Mm. And I remember getting into the ice 
And suddenly there was a lady in the lane beside me and she had a woolly hat on. And she was like going off for an afternoon swim. So I just took off and I, I'm not a pool swimmer. So I had to go up and down the pool 40 times to swim a kilometre. And as I pushed off from the wall, my, ev everything went and I got a sense of panic. And about five, six, seven strokes in, I, everything went me and I started to panic. And yeah. I never experienced panic. Panic was not, it was such a foreign thing to me. And as I pushed off the top wall and came down again, everything went. And this sense of control that I had all my life. This so it's the head are, went like, it's not the body gave up, the head went. But you see, it controls. Yeah. And then as I pushed back, I, I got I, I stood up at 150 metres and I was perfectly fine. But I put the feet under me and the pool offered me these opt outs. And I hated that feeling where I mm. had an option to get out. But I stood up and I took that option and I'll never forget standing up and climbing out the ladder. There was nothing wrong with me. And I really genuinely was so stressed that I had opted out of something as I watched the men achieve it. Gutted she was. She went home. She regrouped. I remember sitting at home with a cup of tea trying to figure out how do I proceed here? So my response was, you know, I don't panic. So what happened? I'm never anxious. So what happened? So I sit at home at night with my pen and paper trying to figure out, OK, let's fix the things that went wrong mm. and find my way forward. And at that time, we discovered cold shock. So I reached out with education, uncovered what cold shock was, that you have to calm your breathing, you have to bring everything down and then you have all the other responses. And then over a period of six and eight weeks, I would go up into Peddler's Lake and I would sit there and I would just swim one minute extra every day and focus on recovery. And I went on in 2013, then just six, eight weeks later to be the first woman, the first Irish swimmer, but the third woman in the world to complete 1000 at zero. So it was just understanding what stopped me. Yeah. And then writing it down bit by bit. But what I loved about the ice was that it was about staying in control in those moments of crazy. But why, oh why, would you put yourself through such an extreme challenge? The beauty of the ice is it forces extreme honesty within yourself. And What do you mean? Um, what I loved about it is it called me out. Yeah. It forced me to look at every weakness that I had and fix every weakness. So if I went in and it, I, the breathing wasn't working and I couldn't breathe, there had to be a reason for that. So if I felt unsteady, then I had to fix that. So the beautiful thing about anything in the extremes is it forces you to be the best version of yourself. It increases every need to be brilliant at this moment. The very impressive Nuala Moore with Brendan and her memoir aptly titled Limitless. Back in a bit. Welcome back. With Miriam on Sunday, Al Porter. Six years ago, he was flying high, very high indeed. The comedian had been the youngest headliner at Vicker Street at only 21. He'd sold out the Apollo in London. But then in 2017, almost overnight, his radio, TV and comedy gigs ended in the wake of accusations of inappropriate sexual behaviour and then an accusation of sexual assault. Now he denied any wrongdoing and in 2019 charges were dropped. Separately, an independent investigation found he had uninvitedly kissed a patient in St. Patrick's on the cheek in a pose for a photograph. Now he is returning to the stage with the new show. But the Al Porter who spoke to Miriam, well, words like chastened, mature and yes, humbled spring to mind. 
This was Miriam's opening question. You were young. No, that's not an excuse. You were drinking. You were taking drugs. Again, not an excuse. So what explains how you behave towards other people, do you think? Well, when I look back on that time in my life, I was deeply immature, hugely immature. And because it's been six years and you're looking back on your late teens and your early 20s with the perspective of a 30 year old and with a perspective of somebody who's come under a lot of very public criticism, uh, I'm able to look at that time and say, you know, I was arrogant. I was very insensitive. I think I was inconsiderate in the truest sense of the word, in the sense that I literally did not take into consideration uh, the people around me. And I think I was naive and under this illusion in my own head that I'm great and I'm so funny and everybody thinks I'm funny and everybody understands where I'm coming from. And that's not necessarily the case. And there was a major wake up call then in November 2017 when people came out and said, well, no, you're not so great and you're not so funny and you need to do better. On reflection, when I look at that at the time in November 2017, you're I was 24 and totally unprepared for that and unprepared for that wake up call and and overwhelmed by it. So I didn't really respond how I would now. Uh, but now I can look back and say people expected better of me at that time in my life and they had every every right to expect better of me. I wish I had done things differently. I wish I had been a better colleague, a better friend. I wish that I had been just an all-round better person. And I think that it's no one factor that caused everything to fall apart as it did. Um, it's a combination of factors. As you say, you know, you can't blame youth or you can't blame fame or money or or drink or anything else. Those are contributing factors to one big ego, one massive self-centred ego that was at the heart of all of that back then. And the responsibility for his behaviour and its impact, he says, lies squarely at his own feet. I don't pity myself. Uh, I realised very early on that, you know, pity is due not when you're the idiot at the centre of it all. You're the stupid person. You're the person uh, who caused everything to fall apart. And self-pity is a bottomless pit that there is no getting yourself out of. It's, you know, self-responsibility was the only thing. I'm conscious even as you say it there that it, it, it sounds like, well, OK, that's the past and water under the bridge and, you know, you've made amends with people and, you know, not everybody and it's not perfect and it is something that I'm trying to work on over time and some people I wrote letters to some people didn't want them some people did um, there are people who you speak to in person that's often easier and more successful and then there are some people who you say I'm not going to make contact with you because there's nothing I can say that I think is going to improve the situation and you have to live with that because there's no closure there for either person or resolution but I hope in those scenarios that how I live my life now and how I live it until the end is is a response. 
He talked to Miriam about drinking and taking drugs, but he is now approaching his third year of sobriety, which he does describe as a challenge. And add to that, losing almost everything. It is perhaps no surprise that all of this took a massive toll on his mental health. It was such a shock and so overwhelming that I was just, I was numb to it for for years. I mean, that's where the, the drink became even more and, and the Xanax and the Valium and anything you can do to numb yourself from it. And I kind of lived a bit of a non-life for years. It was a, a purgatory, you know, as I say, a purgatory of my own making. If, if I had been able to confront it honestly and, and authentically straight away, that purgatory might have been unnecessary. But that, that non-existence of just being in your mum's house and, and being in bed with the curtains drawn and unable to leave the bedroom and unable to leave uh, the house and with the the incredibly dark thoughts and, and, and the kind of repeated ideation that it would be better if I wasn't here, it would be better for my family, it would be better for my boyfriend. I brought this horribleness onto them and, you know, the, the living with that for, for years, um, it mightn't have been necessary if I had the maturity or the perspective to deal with it, but I didn't. At one point, he'd sunk so low that he contemplated taking his own life. Did you honestly, seriously think that the world would be better off without you in it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I remember when when that became something that I thought every day and often, that was when I went to the uh, psychiatric hospital to meet a, a psychiatrist and to talk about that because no matter if there was never going to be a career on stage again or there was never going to be, uh, you know, if even if nobody ever said a good word about me ever again, I still had to sort out, well, this isn't right to be thinking I would much rather not be here. And I did, uh, you know, I considered it very seriously, you know, and uh, obviously the, the the funny reason that I, I give in, in the show every now and then is one thought crossed my mind that, I wouldn't have a suit to be buried in because I'd gained so much weight. I was really quite big. I was LGBTQ plus, and I say I was the plus. But I thought I better lose weight if I'm going to take my own life because I don't. They won't have a suit to bury me in, or I don't want my uh, my mam to have to deal with that or to you know. And 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 this is a mad a mad thought to be thinking. I was out jogging and my neighbours were saying, oh, you're getting in shape. You must be going back on TV. And I was thinking, no, I'm killing myself. <laughs> it's the exact opposite. Now, there are lots of jokes in the show about that that are funnier and funny, but the reality of it obviously isn't funny. And the reality of it is that that was a, that was a rock bottom. That was my kind of lowest moment. Now, a lot of the conversation with Miriam dealt with some really serious, difficult stuff. But Al Porter says his new show is funny. Honest. I just can't wait to show them the show. And I think people are going to really enjoy it. If the previews are anything to go by. I mean, I might eat my words. I could be sitting here with you at Christmas going, (laughs) they didn't like it, Miriam. And I'm moving to Australia and I'm going to become an electrician. And that's the end of that. But if I do do that, at least I'll have tried. I understand that people might say, well, you know, would he not just forget about it? Move on. You had your chance. You squandered the chance. Move on. But I can't because it's my passion. 
and I love it. And when you love something like this and you love to make people laugh, you have to do it, whether it's to five people or 5,000. So, uh, you know, but I hope it's more than five people and tickets are on sale. (laughs) (laughs) The title of the new show, Now. No matter how badly you've effed up your life, no matter how much you've messed up, no matter how badly it's gone, there's always a new day. There's always a now. Al Porter with Miriam. And that was quite the interview. So if you need them, rte.ie forward slash helplines. Meanwhile, it was perhaps Oliver who put it best. It's definitely autumn now. Uh, we know this because you're walking into cobwebs across doorways that weren't there a couple of seconds before. This is Randy Spider season and it's daddy long legs drunken flying time. They're sprouting out of your lawn and they do really well after a wet summer so you can enjoy that. Five, one, five, five. And that thread, yes we did, was taken up by Dr Michelle Dugan of the Venom System Lab at UCG. Because this time of year, if you're a spider, well, sex, death and last orders. At this time of the year, the, most of the females have matured, the males as well, and now the males are on a countdown. They're going to die fairly soon with the first frost or the first cold. And uh, it is now their last chance to actually find a female, uh, get jiggy and, and have some babies. <laughs> okay. So they're on the hunt at the moment, not for someone to bite, but for a mate. Absolutely. Imagine that you are in a pub at 2.30am and uh, that's the level of desperation of male spiders (laughs) at the moment. And what tempts them into our homes or do we just believe that they want to be in our homes? Because we we are, I I know a lot of us here in the office we're talking about seeing very many more spiders than we have in the last couple of weeks uh, in the last few days. So the female spiders tend to live always on their web. So they do live in and around the houses, but they're quite well hidden and we don't spot them much. They're really living in dark corners. Meanwhile, the males are now really uh, following their hormones and trying to look for females. So they wander absolutely everywhere. And those spiders that you see entering now in numbers in your home or in your office or whatever, are actually males that are attracted by by female pheromones. So they're staggering in, spilling their pints everywhere, on the lookout for, for any female. It's exactly that. But give a guy a break. They're under a lot of time pressure. And in terms of lifespan then, when we look at the males and the females, Michelle, what's the difference? Oh, the difference can be enormous. So while most native female spiders would live anywhere between a couple of years and let's say five years, males usually last only one year. So in the spider world, um, females actually have a a great advantage in terms of longevity, while actually males uh, have to do with, with what they have, and that is just one season to complete their life cycle. Okay, that's why they're in such a hurry maybe. Yes, absolutely. It's now mm-hmm. never. And on Mooney Goes Wild, more mating, this time butterflies, and the tables are turned. With Aina Nilauna, David James, Associate Professor of Entomology at Washington State University. And the monarch butterfly, very beautiful, but their drive to survive, ruthless. The environmentalist Miriam Rothschild described monarch males as male chauvinist pigs. So what are the male monarchs doing to warrant such a description by Miriam Rothschild? 
Well, it's well-deserved, really, because uh, the male monarch is, is very different from many other male butterflies. Many other male butterflies um, serenade their female partner with pheromones and uh, and courtship dances and uh, all the romantic things that you might think the butterflies do. Um, and that, that is the case with, with most butterfly species. But the male monarch is an exception to that. Um, and there's probably others, but this the male monarch is the most... Uh, familiar and most famous example of this where it dispenses with the use of pheromones and they used to use pheromones apparently because they still have the organs that produce pheromones but they're not functioning anymore so instead the male monarch simply grabs the female and often in mid-air they'll be flying and the male will see a female flying and just land on top of it in mid-air and drag her to the ground just fall to the ground and forcibly mate with her on the ground with uh, no preamble, no no pheromones, no no romantic courtship at all. And that's what Miriam Rothschild was referring to when she, she called the male monarch the nature's prime example of a male chauvinist pig. Can you believe it? You'll never look at a butterfly the same way again. Back in a bit. Welcome back. On Wednesday afternoon, the UK government passed its Northern Ireland Troubles Bill, controversial legacy legislation which sets up an independent commission tasked with investigating 1,000 unsolved killings and offering conditional amnesties and immunity from prosecution for perpetrators. The UK government says this will draw a line under violence of the past and help people to move forward. Victims say it denies them and their families justice. On Morning Ireland, Angus Cox spoke to campaigner Raymond McCord, whose son, also named Raymond Jr., was murdered 27 years ago. In 1997, the 9th of November, remembering Sunday it was, the, the UVF from Mount Vernon, the special branch UVF from Mount Vernon, because they were all special branch agents, and they were, it was proven by a police ombudsman, ordered my eldest son, Raymond Jr., he's 22. No one's ever been charged. Even though collusion was proven, none of the killers and none of the policemen who colluded with the UVF would still keep battling for justice for the young man. And 26 years later, the Northern Ireland Legacy Bill has passed the final hurdle at Westminster. What's your reaction? Disgusted. What, what the Conservative government is bringing out is uh, a legalised form of murder, a legalised version of uh, government and state cover-ups. The British government officially betrayed 3,600 victims and their families. Will you continue to oppose this bill even when it becomes law, which seems inevitable now? I'm going to take them to court. I'm going to fight the British government in court. The Tories tell us it'll help us move on. But they've yet to tell us once in two to three years how it will help us. They use use, uh, pretense will get answers. I don't need answers about my son's murder. I know who done it. A lot of victims are the, uh, the same as myself. The only answers we want is when the police will stop covering up for these murders because they're agents and bring them to court. We want to know when they're going to bring the to court. Now this legislation is opposed by all Northern Ireland political parties and by the Irish government. However, Gavin put this to Ian Jeffries from the Commission for Victims and Survivors in Northern Ireland. Is that it then? Is, is that an end for justice for victims and their families? 
Well, it certainly feels uh, today that the justice, the doors have been closed in justice, but it's not the end. You, you heard Raymond say he is a victim, will fight it in court, and I'm aware of other victims that have a similar view on that. But it's disgraceful that any government is now saying, well, let victims take this order to court and see, see if it is really legal, uh, see if it will stand up. We, we should never put our victims into that. Uh, our job as a civilised society is to look after our victims uh, and not effectively close any door for them. Is there anyone apart from the Conservative Party and British Army veterans that wants this bill? I haven't met them. Uh, I've been Commissioner for Victims and Survivors in the North now for well over a year and I've yet to meet anybody that supports the bill and that includes incidentally a number of veterans. Uh, I've met a number of people that served during uh, the troubles and the conflict in the North and they're adamant that if somebody that pulled on the uniform of the Crown did wrong that they should feel the full force of the law. So I think we can't say every veteran supports the bill as well. From Morning Ireland... The next stage is expected to be legal challenges and the Irish government is considering whether they will take an interstate case against the UK government. This week also, a lot of attention on the kids singing along to the wolf tones at the electric picnic. On Thursday's News at One, Brian put this to Taoiseach Leo Varadkar. Just a final question, uh, Taoiseach. We know you're a music fan. I wonder, are you going to be buying tickets for the wolf tones at the Three Arena next year? Uh, probably not. <laughs> Why'd you ask? <laughs> well, I'm just wondering. I'm wondering what you think of the the success they're enjoying. Yeah. Well, look, I, I was at Electric Picnic. Um, didn't get a chance to um, uh, see the Wolf Tones or, or the Saw Doctors. Um, you know, I, I, I probably have a more sanguine view of this than maybe other people. People like ballads. Um, they like songs that they can sing along to. Um, I think uh, some people maybe read too much into the politics of this. Um, um, but there is one thing that I would say. Um, I believe we are on the path to unification. Uh, I believe that there will be a united Ireland in my lifetime. And in that united Ireland, there is going to be a minority, uh, roughly a million people who are British. And you judge the success and the quality of a country by the way it treats its minorities. And that's something we're going to have to think about uh, because what is, you know, a Republican ballad, um, a nice song to sing, uh, easy words to learn for some people can be deeply offensive to other people. If we're going to unite this country and unite the people of this country, a bit like Patrick Keelty says, we just need to have a think about how our words and how the songs we sing might be heard by other people. From the News at One. On Arena, some mixing and meddling. On the tomb they do the sand dance, don't you know? If they move too quick, go away, oh, they're falling down like a domino. All the bizarre men by the Nile, they got the money on a bet. Gold crocodiles away, oh, they snap the teeth on your cigarette. Foreign types with the hookah pipes say, Waitresses take their trays, they spin around and they cross the floor. They've got the moves, oh, hey, oh, you drop your drink when they bring you more. All the school kids, oh, are sick of books, they like the punk and the metal band. When the buzzer rings, oh, hey, oh, they're walking like an Egyptian. And the kids in the marketplace, hey, oh, hey, oh, hey, oh, 
was it to bring the Bangles and Philip Glass together? Thank you, Sean. The answer from Anthony Roth Costanza, who, alongside Justin Vivian Bond, brings their show only an octave apart to the Gate Theatre in Dublin as part of the Fringe Festival. I became well-known in opera for doing this role of Akhenaten, the Mm. ancient Egyptian pharaoh that Philip Glass wrote an opera about. And, um, you know, we were were sitting in Viv's house in upstate New York talking about songs, and she said, why don't we just do Walk Like an Egyptian? And I said, well, what if I bring uh, some of that Philip Glass, you know, vocalism where it goes, ha, 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 like that over and over, and we layered it in, so we started to layer Philip Glass's trademark arpeggios in, and then it becomes a whole ridiculous uh, mishmash. But what a mishmash when two worlds collide. I first saw Vivian perform, we all call her Vivian, uh, at Joe's Pub in New York, which is a little cabaret. And I was immediately struck by one of the best performers I've ever seen in a genre which is so different from all of the trappings of opera that you can imagine. And I'm a countertenor, which means I sing with this very high voice and I look like I wouldn't have it. And of course, Vivian sings with, I think someone described it as a, you know, a thousand cigarettes or something (laughs) like that. So (laughs) it's a different sound. But um, somehow our musical approaches and our personalities are so linked that it it shows you something i don't not sure either of us know what but it shows you something about Mm. identity you get a real sense of how two people can be much closer than they appear from arena with claire the last gasp of the irish pub now, its demise has been on the cards for a while, but as historian Jermot Ferreter reminded us, we've a long way to go. There were 17,000 licensed premises in Ireland in the mid-1920s. Uh, now, 13,000 of them were pubs because there were different types of, of, of licences that were offered. Um, and there was a very interesting observation by the writer George Russell in 1925. Um, he started going through individual towns and he said it's absurd in a country that's desperately trying to find its feet that we are trying to m- maintain in proportion to our population twice as many licensed premises as England, three times as many as Scotland. And he started going through individual towns and villages and he said, look at Charleston, look at Strokestown, look at Roscommon. Um, and then he honed in on Ballyhonus. And he said there's one drinking shop for every 20 residents in Ballyhonus. Um, so there was much cultural comment on that. The Commission on Intoxicating Liquor uh, suggested that there were 191 towns and villages in Ireland that had an excessive number of pubs. Not quite every family with its own pub, but pretty close. But if you are at this weekend, impress your friends with this nugget courtesy of the Darcy. Grace Tierney runs a blog called Word Foolery. Her word of the week social. It was from a war in Roman times, about 80 BC, and Saki were actually a word for allies. So the allies of the Romans were fighting for getting the same citizenship rights as the Romans had. They went to war for three years. They lost, unfortunately, but that's where we get the word social from. So there. Now the Rugby World Cup is starting and the History Show is back. Yes, there is a link. Here is Miles Dungan in fanciful dream mode. 
We're in Paris, Stade de France to be precise, and we've just witnessed one of the greatest Rugby World Cup finals ever. Ireland have not only shattered their quarter-final hoodoo, but they've gone on to win it all in front of a raucous crowd. Johnny Sexton lifts aloft the trophy, the Webb Ellis Cup, named in honour of one William Webb Ellis. So just who is he and what is his role in the formation of rugby? Born in 1806, he went to Rugby Public School and they erected a plaque in his honour with this inscription. This stone commemorates the exploit of William Webb Ellis, who with a fine disregard for the rules of football as played in his time, first took the ball in his arms and ran with it, thus originating the distinctive feature of the rugby game, AD 1823. It's engraved on a plaque. It must be true. I think you know where this is going. Here is Ian Kennelly, historian and programme researcher, pouring cold water on a few tall tales surrounding the man and rugby's origin myths. In the context of the time, rugby had no formal rule book. It wasn't until the 1845 or so that there was the, the first attempt at a formal rule book. And the game consisted of an indeterminate number of players, but you had maybe 50 or 60 on each side. And you could call it scrums, but effectively it was just two huge melees facing each other, kicking the ball forward, or mostly kicking each other. They called it hacking. Uh, and eventually, by chance, the ball would go into the air. Uh, and if you caught it on the full, you could bring a momentary halt to the madness by, by calling Mark. And what that would do is the opposing team would, would advance to the line of where you called the Mark and whoever called the Mark would step backwards and they'd have an opportunity to consider what to do next. And that was seems to be invariably they'd taken an uncontested kick, they'd bash it down the field and it would all start again. But William Webb, Webb Ellis apparently decided to uh, run with the ball, uh, Forrest Gump style, down the pitch and that apparently was the beginning of, of rugby. Or was it? The web of lies begins here. Where does this story actually originate? Yeah, for years afterwards, there, you know, there, this story didn't exist. And it, it, it first uh, emerges in 1876, a guy called uh, Matthew Bloxham, a former student of, uh, of rugby school and a, an antiquarian of sorts. And he wrote a letter to the school magazine uh, in that year to say that he had heard that William Webb Ellis had uh, again defied the conventions of the day by catching the ball and running with it and therefore originating the sport of rugby. And he said that that happened in 1824. Now, one of the, the catches with that was that uh, William Webb Ellis had actually left uh, rugby school in 1823 and gone on to Oxford University. And just a brief sideline on, on, on the rest of his career. As far as we know, he had no connection, uh, Webb Ellis, that is, to rugby after he left rugby school. Cricket was his sport. Uh, he eventually became a Church of England minister, a uh, fairly well-known preacher and author, and, and, and he died in France in 1872. But uh, Bloxham made this claim in 1876, came back in 1880 and had modified the story slightly so it would fit with William Ellis's dates in the school saying that this happened in uh, 1823 but nobody cared at the time it just it gained no traction whatsoever uh, important to relate though that this story did not originate from William Webb Ellis himself was he even aware I mean the uh, Bloxham comes out with the story in 1876 William Webb Ellis has been dead for four years yeah, at that stage. there is no 
historical record, there's no statement, there's no hearsay even that William Webellis knew about this or that he made any claims during his life to have uh, had such an august role in, in rugby's history. And also when it came to that original overture from Bloxham, it was on the basis that he had heard. So it's Thorchban mm. Lum, Gunnorchban Lay. That's it. That's all it is. There's nothing, nothing to back it up whatsoever. Oh, deception at the highest levels. Is the ball even oval? The conspiracies start here. But come on, Ireland. Well, that is it from this week's playback. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week.